Okay, let's uh, let's have a go. This is uh, so the confusion is all on me because I'm so glad you're here. You're the best guy. It's so nice to see you. Thanks for coming. There's probably hot chocolate around if you need it. Uh, you know, because I don't pay any attention to the. I'm just uh, you know. I just try to get my shoes tied in the morning, okay? So I wasn't really like looking ahead to, hey, Sunday school is canceled because it's Memorial Day. So it's not on Sandy. This is all on me. It's not on Pastor Nelson. They all did it. We'll do better next year. But let's pray, and we'll wrap up. We'll wrap up a bunch of things because you came. We'll give you like super secret knowledge. This will be like a cheat on those games you play, but it'll be for free, okay? So it's all going to be great. It's uh, it's going to so Pentecost. I mean, the spirit was working in the first service, wouldn't you say? It had fallen upon the young children, and they prophesied, did they not, in the first service? I just want to say, here's the thing I want to say, though. The parents in the first service played it exactly right. That, just in case you were curious, that's about the noise level where you take your kid out. But they brought it back, and it was great. It was like, that wasn't so much noise that anybody had to be nervous. And it was, the great thing was, is like, we were like, yeah, that's what happens when you bring all these kids to church. It's great. So, um, and it's fun if you, if that's the rules of the game, that's, that's really fun because then people feel comfortable and you can go in and you can go out and you don't have to be, I always feel bad for the parents, like the kids are going to be fine, they don't care. But, uh, but it's actually nice where parents are like, yeah, it's okay, I'm fine. Because it used to be, you know, parents would leave and not come back for a month, but you know what? So it's all good. Like, you know, see, I mean, they're, you know, that, uh, no, I got no idea if there's child care. I don't even know if I'm at St. John Lutheran Church right now. All I know is it's Pentecost and I have to go again in an hour. But other than that, I got no, there's no child care. It is what it is. It's right here, man. Look at how happy Jake is to be here. I know, man. Here's the thing, Jake. If I were you, don't you have a video game on a phone somewhere? Get a phone from your parents and get downstairs. I mean, oh my gosh. It's tough having your dad be a financial advisor, isn't it? And uh, All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Almighty God, we beg, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts too, that through your blessed word, he guides us and rules us. He strengthens us and leads us. He lets us stand faith, fast in faith and increases our love for good works. In the sure hope of your grace, which you've obtained for us by your death, and you give to us through your word and sacraments. Through Christ our Lord, amen. All right, uh, so a lot of things about, a lot of little things. So, um... Good news about the organ this week, you know, so, you know, short organ update. You know, we had this organ that's probably worth a million bucks and we're paying 300000 or $350,000 for it because it's from parts and it was a new guy starting and it's been delayed and blah, blah, blah. Of course, the, what you should all do if you're Christian should pray for this dude's health because, you know, it's a one-man deal. He's quite, quite well known, but he's still a one-man deal. Anyway, he designs them. His dad put them in. Well, his dad passed away in February, so suddenly he didn't have the guy to kind of put it together. So we got word this week that he's importing a guy from Switzerland, Mr. Crow, from Switzerland. And what they do is, and this is always fascinating to me, they build the whole organ in the shop and make sure it works. Then they tear it down and they rebuild it here because they want the problems to happen in the shop where they have a lot of tools instead of here. So, you know, the guy from Switzerland gets here this week or next week. In a couple of weeks, he'll be able to tell us hey, that's going to be fine. And, you know, maybe Christmas, maybe Easter. You can't hold me to anything. You know, maybe 2016 or 2017. Maybe by the time Luther posts the 95 Thesis by a 500-year anniversary, it'll all be good, right? So um, anyway, that's good. Next thing is you've got a voters' information meeting next week and then a voters' meeting after that. So come next week. 
It should be fun. What's interesting, um, kind, of the, kind of the evolution of St. John and the finances and everything, it's been really kind of interesting. So life is really good in this sense that, you know, all the accounts are filled. There's a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank for those. There's another couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank for reserve. Every year we're spending a couple hundred thousand doing, you know, big things like the parking lots. They're going to be a couple hundred thousand dollars for the parking lots-ish. So, you know, and the insurance man says we need to do that or, you know, one of you will break an ankle and sue us and then we won't have an insurance man anymore. So, I mean, there are things that have to do. You know, if any of you have an extra $100,000, we'll let you, you know, in the cartoons where they push that thing and the building blows up? Honestly, you give me $150,000, I will find a way that you get to be on the plunger and you can blow the building up next door. I'm not kidding you. For 150000 bucks. For $3.5 million, I will change this to St. Your Name Lutheran Church because that would pay the mortgage. I'm not kidding you, man. I, would, I could get that through in a voters' meeting. It could be. It could be St. Richard Lutheran Church, man. It could be, you know. St. Diane and St. Richard Lutheran Church. St. Diane and oh, See, I mean, rock on. And for an extra 150000 you can push the plunger and have the new place named after you, okay? So, exactly. Here we go, baby. So, um, you know, we got these things, but it should be fun. Now, here's the important thing. There's a very modest increase, and if you're of a governing board, or this is a different number than you heard in the governing board, it's lower. There's just only an ask for about a $22,000 increase in, the, in giving for next year. It's a very small ask. But what's important is, and maybe we need to do this each year, is to kind of, for everybody, just to, you know, it's the once-a-year time to kind of look at your own finances and say, hey, what's going on? If you're already given 10% and you're giving some alms to the poor, by the way, alms to the poor go where? Russia. Russia. So if you're already given 10% and given all support, it's great. You know, just ask yourself, can you do a little bit more? I mean, 10% at some point in your life isn't probably that big a strain anymore if you get kids out of the house or, you know, you just won the lottery or whatever. It's, uh, you know, it's not that big a deal. If you're kind of moving toward that, fantastic, you know, kind of look around and see whether you can do it. And there are always some people, probably not, maybe, maybe not here this morning because they had kids and, you know, whatever. But there, there are always some people who haven't quite caught on. But, you know, then it's time to catch on. And if we sort of... Talk about this really clearly, um, you know, briefly but clearly, then, you know, things kind of go in the right direction. So, I mean, here's the thing. This is a mark of the Holy Spirit. I mean, or at least it's a partial spirit because you only have some of your kids here and your husband. So, like, your husband and your other child have gone for a donut. Is that what's happened here? Don't tell the other ones, okay? So, this is like when Benjamin, like, stole the thing and they left the brothers as ransom. That's what's happened here. This is a Bible story. He's found, is he? Good, okay. So, I mean, life's good. All right, so, um, everything else. You got questions about anything else? Everything is good. Life is good. The ink is black. People are happy. You know, um, we, you know we're, any, any crises we got are fine. Life is, life is okay. All right, I want to do two things. I did write you a little thing because I was, um, well, one, it was good for me to sum it up all in my own head. So if you grab the thing that says 17, let's just, let's just kind of whip through that. And we'll go back and we'll circle back around and see Nicodemus. So here's the thing. This is, in some ways, it's so easy. But then when I, I went back and I read every lesson, everything I'd written across the course of this year, you know, we went some kind of crazy places this year. But, I mean, there are some basic things that stand out. And the real start of it is, is um, that Jesus has a loving heart. And, you know, that just takes a ton of patience to say that. It takes a, you're going to have to be happy with how Jesus does his work. You're going to have to be good with the fact that Jesus loves people that you don't really love and he's happy to be around people that you don't really want to be around. 
But I mean, it's, a, it's very important for the church. And I think this is, um, you know, this is probably, well, you can ask your friends and you can ask pastors, you know, if you ask, what defines the heart of Jesus? If they don't say love or mercy or grace, some equivalent, if they actually say wrath or judgment or giving people hell, they, they, like, that is not the Jesus of the church. This is a very, you know, everything has to be said very simply, but Jesus has a loving heart. When you see, we don't have this much in our tradition, but you know those pictures where Jesus is standing there just kind of like normal, and then his heart is, the whole, and you can see his heart there, and it's pierced and bleeding. Yeah, it's pierced and bleeding for people because he loves them, right? So, I mean, this, just, this notion that Jesus loves you is a notion that somehow we mouth it sometimes. I'm talking about the church, big church, but we don't really always believe it, and when we believe it, we don't always really like it. So, you know, you've got to work hard to make Jesus your enemy. Don't work hard to make Jesus your enemy. But Jesus loves you, you know, and he'll only be your enemy if you make him do that, okay? The next thing is Jesus wants everybody back. And when I say Jesus wants all his children home again, I'm talking about all his children. If we confess that Jesus made all of us, right? So you came from somewhere. You came from the will of God. And you came from the, God created so he could love you. More people to love. There were the, you know, Father loves Son, Son loves Spirit, Spirit loves Son and Father, you know, but the creation was so there'd be more people to love. The most important thing about you is you are created to be loved, okay? And so, you know, Jesus wants, you know, children, people do different and people do different things. People go through life in different ways. Jesus wants every one of those people back again. And you can sort of see, I was, I was kind of curious to, and this is what I was aiming at, but we fairly closely hit it. Almost everybody you know is in this list. If you sort of look at this list under number two, the eager, the curious, the pained, the yearning, if you think back, the lapse, the loss, the paralyzed, the happy-go-lucky, right, the hard party, partying. I mean, I told you about the funeral that we did for the guy who was beaten to death and set on fire by his best friend, and he was kind of lapsed from the church, and then they, they come to us and say, well, you do the funeral, and so we did this text. This text was the funeral text, the wedding at Cana. Why? Because Jesus loves a good party. And this guy was kind of a hard-charging partier guy, but he had been or was, or something Lutheran thing going on at some point in his life, so that's close enough for us, and we can still talk about Jesus. I mean, Jesus loves a good party, right? Jesus is the one who changes the water into wine to keep it going, right? And then there are all these people who are difficult, like St. Peter, or broken, like this woman who's weeping on Jesus' feet, that nobody else will touch her. I mean, you, this is like... In theory, it's easy to love these people, but they get close and they start touching on you and you're just like, what in the world, right? I'm turning the page. You know, people who are rich or people who are kind of sad, this guy, that, that, that's disciple number 13, such a nice, such a nice guy, but he couldn't quite come to it. And yet, Pastor, Pastor Nelson tells me he's the guy that was in the tomb, maybe, in Mark's Gospel. Maybe he's the guy. Maybe he's the guy who was in Gethsemane who ran away naked. And maybe he's the guy who was in the tomb clothed. Such an interesting interpretation of the text. It doesn't have to be that that's an angel in that text. It doesn't. It says it was a young man. Um, so, you know, people sometimes who hang around, they see stuff. People who are on the street, they see stuff. People who pay attention, they know what's going on. You know, these habitual people who, are, you know, they just keep sinning or their life is sinful. Right? They just, you know, or Nicodemus, you know. So let's just do what's left of Nicodemus. If you have a Bible, you can pull it out, but I can kind of go kind of from memory where I'm going. Um, you know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He comes in the nighttime. He's an overachiever, and there's a chance that Nicodemus is going to run right past Jesus. Sometimes people want it so badly, they want it so badly that they can't believe Jesus is Jesus. And you often find that this is where wagging the finger comes in the church, 
where people have this idea of Jesus that um, doesn't look like Jesus at all. They just want Jesus to be, they just want him to be in a particular way, but he's going to be his own guy. And Nicodemus comes, he's earnest, he's kind, he's successful, he's bright. He's clearly a seeker, he's questing, right? And, um, but he, he, he has some presuppositions about Jesus, and Jesus kind of shatters those for him. And he, he does that by saying, come on now, you're a smart guy. You're coming, you're a smart guy. And you, you see, he's a smart guy, so he can take a little bit of back and forth. So right away, Jesus gives him a little bit of back and forth. Hey, you're a smart guy. How come you don't know what wind means? Hey, you're a smart guy. How come you don't know what water means? You're a smart guy. How come you don't understand these things, right? And, and sometimes when you appeal to smart guys, that's how you have to appeal to them. Nicodemus clearly processes at the level of the intellect. He's not, a, he's not somebody who processes at the level of emotion. Um, the most brilliant... I was like, yesterday in Barron's, um, there was an article about why BlackBerry failed and why iPhones succeeded. Did any of you see this? It's genius. It's completely theological. It's, it tells a story about the guys at BlackBerry, and they have this phone that's secured. It's got a keyboard, and all the business guys are signed up, and they've got a network that works, and it's fast, and blah, blah, blah. There's a story in there about when they saw the iPhone for the first time. And Steve Jobs has announced that I've got an iPhone. And he said, they said, look at that thing, man. It's not secure. It's not fast. The keyboard stinks. Who would put music on their phone? You know? And later the guy says, is so, so I'm going to run it as a margin comment. I'll edit it up for you. But later he says, we didn't understand that people would buy beauty. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, that's what we've been talking about the whole time. What are the things that postmoderns like? Spirituality, community, justice, and beauty. And this makes Jobs a bigger genius than he was before. He understood. So he puts his life into designing a thing that's beautiful. Maybe not in the way you think of beauty in a Da Vinci or, you know, the bean or something. But, you know, for, 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 for people, a lot of people... It's, it, it is a beautiful thing. When I was at a lecture at Stanford once, and the guy said, um, it was in the design school, and the guy's holding up his iPhone, talking about his iPhone, he said, somebody said to him, you don't have a case. And he said, I don't have a case because this is jewelry. Right? It's genius. I mean, to, to be able to understand people, to be able to read people. That's what Jesus does to Nicodemus. So he understands what Nicodemus's deal is. Nicodemus is like, he just cannot not have the truth, Right? And what Jesus tries to do is give him the truth, but give it to him, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He tries to give him the truth in a way that doesn't compromise it, that, 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 that Nicodemus isn't the boundary of it. The truth is bigger than Nicodemus. Nicodemus thinks, you know, the truth is this big around, I've got to figure it out, and if you could just color in what I've left uncolored, it'll all be good. And what Jesus does, he explodes that whole thing. You should be born again. How can I be born again? What could this mean? How could this be, Right? So this is how Jesus talks to him. Now, the interesting thing is, it's very much what we talked about. So I'm at point eight, if you had last week's thing. It doesn't matter. You don't need to have it. Um, Nicodemus. Jesus says, Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this, right? Now, what's interesting is, is Jesus doesn't start by, um, you know, Jesus doesn't start by asking a question. First, he told the story. Hey, you know what this is like? This is like the wind that blows. You know what this is like? This is like when you were born from your mother, a completely passive event. So nobody gets to decide when they're born, 
right? Nobody gets to decide. You don't get to decide if you're going to be born. You don't get to decide when you're going to be born. You don't really even get to decide your own name. Somebody else decides. Your life is an act of somebody else's will. Very interesting. And of course, that's exactly how um, that's exactly how it is with baptism as well. Now, I should say, and this is always what's interesting now is um, uh, when I, about every thirty years you have a big Pentecostal speaking in tongues kind of revival in different countries. So, kind of on the outside fringes, I've been asked to do some lectures in Australia. You know, maybe in a year from now, maybe if it works out. And I said, you know, what would it be on? They're like, oh, the thing that's really troubling us is the Pentecostal movement. And I'm like, you know, I couldn't be less interested in that. And in some ways, I can't even understand how that can be the thing. Although when it's on top of you, as many of you know, if you've lived through it, it's, it's very much about, well, I speak for God. Well, I speak for God. It's a sticky, it's a sticky problem. And one of the places where people often talk about it is this particular text from John. Because they talk about, Jesus says, you need to be born of water and the Spirit. And Americans read that in English and they go, okay, checklist. We need to be born of water and the Spirit. Two separate things. The problem is if you read the Greek, Jesus is very clearly talking about two parts of one thing, like your car has front tires and back tires, okay? So you can tell that because the preposition governs the two things. I gave you the Greek if you care. But, um, you know, you must be born of water and the Spirit. You know, those are two parts of one thing. It all happens at the same time. So uh, Nicodemus would have understood that, but it would have made it even more confusing for him, right? And then um, verse 9, how can this be? Right, if you're looking at John 3, verse 9, Jesus says, you've got be, to be born of water and the Spirit. And he's like, how can this be? One of the really interesting things about Jesus, he's, and I, you know, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you can find this because you just saved me some time. Not, not on a bet, but you saved me some time. How is the question that Jesus never answers? In John 3, he's like, how can you be born again? Jesus is like, if I told you that, it would make your mind explode. In John 6, it's like, how can this man have come down from heaven and give us flesh to eat? Jesus is like, Jesus doesn't even pay, even with intellectual types, even with Nicodemus, Jesus doesn't waste his time talking about how. He just doesn't do it. Because you can't get it. You, I mean, it would fry your circuits if Jesus told you how he does this, right? So we don't say, you know, we don't hold it up and say the body of Christ. And of course, the way that this works is that there's transubstantiation. It was invented by Aristotle. And it's, the, it's how we talk about when things are both substance and accident. We don't do that, Right? You know, this is why when people, if your pastor taught you about confirmation, that the reason you're different from the Catholics is transubstantiation, that's not actually true. I mean, Luther didn't get bothered by transubstantiation. He just said, I can just think of another way that it can be, that it can work, so don't make me just confess one thing. Okay? He didn't, he wasn't bent over that. Jesus doesn't tell us how it works. And this is why the Orthodox are so good, because they never, they never had a Eucharistic controversy. They never had a fight in the East about the Lord's Supper. Everybody just always said that's the body of Jesus that hung on the cross. Since they never had a fight about it, they never spent a lot of time trying to explain it. In the West, where people said it's not the body of Jesus from kind of Luther's time on. Luther didn't say that, but other people did. And you hear it all over Wheaton. When people say it's not the body of Jesus, then people waste a lot of time trying to explain how it can be the body of Jesus. Right? Forget about it. Jesus doesn't tell you how he does it. 
at the end of the day, it's like anything else. Jesus says to you, you know, it's like somebody saying to you, well, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, or this is how you get saved. This is how you're born again when you're plunked in the water and you come back out a new person. How does that work? Ah, well, I can sort of tell you some stuff around the edges, like you were a sinner and it washed you up, or you didn't have a family and now you're adopted, or you didn't have a name and now you have a name, or you were dead and now you're alive, right? Or you were single and now you're married to the church. I mean, there are all kinds of ways you can talk about this. But Jesus isn't interested. It's, it's, so, it's so interesting how he takes care of this very bright boy, this very bright boy who wants to understand how everything works, right? And Jesus basically does two things to him. He tells him the story of how things work. But he doesn't try to explain every last detail. And in doing that, he explains to Nicodemus that his presuppositions are wrong. And what's so interesting is, is that it looks like a losing game. I mean, if you, were, if you were grading Jesus in an evangelism course at the seminary, it'd be a D, it might be a C-, because he remained calm. But, you know, uh, if you were just trying to say, like, you know, how did he do, and did Nicodemus decide for Jesus, and now he knows he's going to heaven if he should die tonight. You know, it's just like, that is often not how things work. How does the kingdom work? It's like you throw seed in the ground and over time it grows. How does the kingdom work? It's like you put yeast in, in dough and it rises slowly, right? What's faith like? Well, it's like a mustard seed. You put it in the ground and then it gets big over time, right? And we're not, we're not happy with that because, you know, got to go. We got, we got a lot of places to go. We want to get things checked off our list and people need to fall in line. People don't fall in line. People don't fall in line. People, they are so different and they weave and they move and they come back and they disappear and they come back and then they don't come back and maybe they do and how do you know? And all you can do, all you can do is do what Jesus does, which is you come to them and you're kind. You sit down and you listen to them. You ask a question or two and you tell a story. And if you're clever along the way, you sort of figure out what is really bothering them. Some people have really things in their past that they need to get out and be forgiven. Perfect, the church is good at that. Some people think they're really smart and they think um, you know, the church isn't very smart. I would love to introduce you to, I don't know, Augustine, Ambrose, Gregory, or Benedict, who was said to be the brightest churchman in a thousand years. It's quite a compliment. I mean, he was, to be, he was said to be, you know, the brightest, the brightest guy in a thousand years. If you think that people in the church are stupid, I'd love you to meet Aquinas, who, by the way, was called the dumb ox when he was in class because he sat there and just sort of soaked everything in. And then when it all poured out of him in his um, summa, when it all poured out of him, people were astounded that it could come from him. Why? Because he was just quiet. He just soaked it all in. And then suddenly, psh, you just never quite know what people are going to do. So what, how do you engage people? Be kind. Be present to them. Real honestly, I mean, the curse of our age is that people feel alone and unloved. Even in the sacristy, we were talking today about the di- difference between... So uh, your kids, I don't know if you know this, if you're paying for college tuition, it was even the Rosenwinkles. Are the Rosenwinkles here? It was so interesting, yeah. You were telling me about Jeff in medical school. The class is going on, but he watches a lot of class virtually, right? 
Right. And it's so interesting because he or you expounded it for me that things he knows he watches at twice speed and things he doesn't know he watches at half speed, which is an incredibly good use of time. So we were talking about that this morning, how what's so interesting about that is that I said, if I was going to college now, I think I would miss going to the classroom. because Well, we were talking about that, and then Bukes goes, that is so cool. And I'm like, yeah, because you're 25. But I said, if it was me... I would think to myself, I'd miss being with my friends, and I'd like to look the professor in the eye. And he's like, there weren't any professors worth looking in the eye. I'm like, okay, point taken. (laughs) But the interesting thing about that was that for people that age, right, between 20 and 30, virtual virtual reality is reality, right? Is human reality. See, for me, I haven't crossed the Tiber yet. The virtual reality is not, for me, reality, right? It's not human reality. I mean, I still think you're an avatar if you're coming across the computer. That's just the way life is. But people don't think that way, right? And your son is a great example of that in med school. And he'll be a great doctor even though he didn't go to classes. I hope his insurance company doesn't find out. So, uh, you know, but it's very, very interesting how he, you know, and it's all about what you can do, right? As my doctor friends used to say, a chance to cut is a chance to cure. So, you know, put that away, okay? Uh, What? What kind of people would talk to? Oh, people who are billing, they talk that way. That's right. So anyway, coming all the way back to the people that you're going to bump into, you're just going to have to to sit down and be quiet for a while. As I put in the thing, your original equipment, as your mother used to say, is two ears and one mouth, right? So, I mean, you can figure the ratio out yourself. Um, People probably need to talk less, and they probably need uh, to listen more. Now I'm flipping, you know, I'm flipping over to, you know, other things, because who knows what's going to happen here. I'm in, the, I'm in the last one I gave you today. You know, be available, which I basically, I, basically under, I basically summed this up under don't be a dork, okay? I mean, really, if you're going to be in the church, please don't be a dork. If you want to be a dork, join another organization. You can still come to church, just don't be a dork while you're here because people can smell that a mile away, right? Which then boils down to loving folks the way they need to be loved. Everybody is different, and you can't love people you can't, people don't feel it. If you, you, you might say that you love them, but it's like, you know, I had, a, I had a good friend whose, you know, dad loved him only when he met his dad's expectations. And in, in many ways, um, by the end of his dad's life, there wasn't much love left to go around because the expectations got more and more strident, you know, more and more boxed in. If you're only going to love people when they sort of meet your expectations, you should know that's not really love. And if you want people to respond, everybody is different. I cannot make sense of a lot of ways that people move through their lives. And I realize that I move through my life in one particular way. And I also realize there's a bunch of different ways to move through life. And things that would cause me pain doesn't necessarily cause other people pain, right? And things that, things that would bother me doesn't necessarily bother other people. And guess what? Things that I welcome, that really bothers other people. Right? So if you're not just going to be alone, if you're going to be in a relationship with people, you do have to try to love them the way they need to be loved. Of course, on the other side is um, you can't just sit around and be demanding about uh, what it is that you want. By the way, if you... Well, if you're over 30, you'll completely get this. But if you're between 20 and 30 or 15 and 30, read Peggy Noonan's piece yesterday in the Wall Street Journal about um, just about sensibilities and how the, why, you know, how the world is, is sort of, why the world is sort of coming apart and what kind of expectations people have. 
is a very interesting, very well-written article. It's, you know, top of the fold on the last page of the first section. Very interesting piece. Um, so it's partly as she's interesting because she's a Catholic. She's a strong Catholic, and so that permeates her writing. It's just, um, it's very interesting. Anyway, don't be a dork. You know, be patient. You coach the team you got, not the team you want. I mean, it's so, you can't sort of trade in your, you know, can't trade in your family or your relatives for other people. You got the team you got, so you're going to have to figure out a way to do that. So be present to them, be patient, right? Um, and repeatedly we've seen how being vengeful, making judgments about other people, the two Pharisees, you know, where the guy says, I'm glad I'm not like other people, or the woman comes and cries at Jesus' feet. You kind of think about the courage. I'm always interested when people come to church here. <laughs> I said, to, there was a woman who came this morning who was new. I said, you know, how'd you find us? She's like, well, it wasn't that hard. And that's actually not what I meant, of course. She gave an honest answer. What I meant is, how'd you screw up the courage to walk across the threshold? Because she doesn't know any of you, and she came alone. Which has to be, that would be a little like you walking into a mosque, right? You, you don't quite know what the rules are. You don't offend anybody. You'd like to be anonymous. You think they might have something you want, but you're not sure how people react to you, right? Walking across the threshold of a church, that's a difficult thing. And really, kindness just goes a long way. Not judgment, not vengeance. People aren't all going to be like you. They all don't need to be loved like you. People are different. They have to change. You have to change. But you might as well take the first step because Jesus has a heart of mercy and Jesus wants all his children home again. And if you start by saying to people, Jesus has a heart of mercy and Jesus wants all his people home again, so shape up. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it's not quite the heart of mercy theme going on there, Okay. Um, you know, be quiet um, and remember that most people work on emotion. The iPhone, most people work on emotion. If you were going to buy the best phone for the money in 2007, you'd have bought a BlackBerry, right? Instead, BlackBerry, if they didn't go bankrupt, they got desperately close. And, um, you know, if you'd have bought Apple stock, you'd be in great shape right now. Because why? Because people, most people, most people that you know make their decisions based on emotion, not on intellect. Which is hard for me because for me, you know, everything is about ducks in a row. A goes to B, B goes to C, A is C. Right? But not everybody's like that, and you have to understand that. In fact, most people aren't like that. And, you know, the chips fall where they fall, and then you have to kind of work that through. Part of that is trying to trying to understand that, um, you know, uh, we just have to keep going. Now, at the Jesus point, I mean, what does happen at the Jesus point is to ask a few questions, and to 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 not, you know, probably the question not to ask is, you know, you're going to go to hell for that, right? That's probably not the right question. You might instead ask people like how where that will go, or where that will lead them, or if it'll be painful, and if it'll be worth it. And if you get far enough along, you can ask, you know, you know, is that a holy thing, or is that an evil thing? One of the really interesting things is the demise of... Um, I was thinking, I don't know what I read that made me think about this yesterday, but I was thinking about why you got to really hear this in the right way. War almost becomes, well, the scriptures talk about this a lot, but war almost becomes a necessity, at least in this sense. I was trying to figure out, you know, how we become so self-interested 
that we would do almost anything to other people. And you can see instances of that all around the world. And the more you watch, the more you see. That when, I mean, a very simple thing is, you know, when we were going through, you know, when we were um, struggling here to move in and get our finances straightened out, and, um, you know, there was the banking crisis at the same time, and there was the, there was, um, you know, kind of, you know, recession in the air, and everybody was afraid. One of the interesting things is that you and John Crow never missed a payment. They're really interesting. We never missed a payment. And they even put our, put our loan into the bad debt thing by mistake because everybody else missed a payment. We never missed a payment. But we were going to all these banks trying to, and we never missed a payment, and we were good for the money. We were going to all these banks trying to talk to people. And what we realized, at least I'm going to speak for myself, John, not for you, what I realized is it really came down to this. The banker was trying to decide whether he'd take a chance on losing his job or I should take a chance on losing my job. And guess what he chose every time? He's going to keep his job. And if you watch people, it's always about now firing people so I don't lose my job. The, the increasing, creeping self-interest. And so self-interest continues to go up. Common good continues to go down, except hopefully in the church. And at some point, the cure for that is destruction if it doesn't stop. Even if you want to, even if you want to analyze the Middle East stuff now, the whole ISIS stuff, you know, what, is, what else is that? except the self-interest. We'll take over a place, and not just take it over, we'll destroy all the texts and all the icons and all the, all the archaeological spots. Every trace of any other culture will destroy that because we're the only culture that matters. We're the only people that can be right. And the world can only be this big around. It's a very interesting thing. If you go down that path where you're the only one that matters, it will be the death of you. And that's how Scripture talks. Love God, serve your neighbor. That always puts you at least at point number three. And in terms of talking to people about the church, that's what you should be talking about. To love God and to be loved. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? If you can focus on those two things, it virtually eliminates you from the equation. And it makes you different than anybody else. And um, it makes the church interesting. (coughs) So Cardinal uh, George, before he died, i got to double-check this quote, but I read it yesterday from a reliable source, said, I will die in my bed. I suspect that my successor will die in prison. And I suspect that his successor will die a martyr in the public square. Now, I talked to you a little bit about old men's disease last week where you start to see everything horribly, and then you, you begin to see... You know, things is all falling apart. But that's a very interesting thing. If you think about it, because they're fairly old when they come, basically what he says is, you know, his successor, who's a young guy, 65-ish, right? So he may, in 20 years he'll be in prison, and 20 years after that, the Archbishop of Chicago will be martyred publicly. It's a very interesting observation. It probably sounds like too much, although if you watch how people treat the church these days, it's probably not impossible. It's very interesting what's happening. How people aren't often, the tipping point has been, and this again goes back to the, um, to the Wall Street Journal article yesterday, the tipping point is not just that everybody gets to have their rights, but that any place where you impinge upon me, your rights need to be curtailed. 
And this is how things always tip into totalitarianism and people become objects and then you can kill them very easily. The Lutherans in the Ukraine, 7 million. The Jews, 6 million. Or pick your number, whatever number you'd like. The Armenians, a million, right? This is, that's how genocide happens, right? So we know that that goes down the wrong path. When you can only see your own interest, we know that in the end, that's destruction. It's evil. It kills people, right? That's the end of you, right? But if you have Jesus' heart as mercy, if you love God first and are willing to be loved and changed, if you're willing to love your neighbor as yourself, which means you can't tell the difference between his interests and your interests, right? If you're willing to have that, suddenly the world, the church will become again what it always was, which is otherworldly, countercultural. In some ways, being part of culture has not done us a favor, in some ways, because it causes too much compromise. In other ways, it's been a great friend to us because we've been protected and we can have church and we can be open. Um, but even things like the move to tax churches, you know, you know, okay, if you're going to tax churches, tax every nonprofit, every nonprofit, okay, tax every last one of them and see what happens. And then also, let's talk about what nonprofits do the best in society, which is the reason this is always, why can you donate your art to the Met and get a huge tax relief? You're doing good for society. Maybe. Are you doing as much good as feeding the poor? Probably not, although I'm quite given to beautiful things. So, you know, People need to ease off about how much disadvantage the church does. Or you could empty all the parochial schools into the public school systems and you could break it, right? People just don't think all the way through when they, when they say stupid stuff like that. Just do the, just do the math. But in any case, um, however you might feel about that, the really important thing when you engage people is to try to be calm about that and maybe even hold that back. We found that yelling people, yelling at people, just people yelling at each other's faces, doesn't really do that much. My entire, my entire, my entire life has been politics has became one loud, long yell, right? Um, even you know, even if you just listened about the Illinois legislature, whichever side you're on, the interesting thing is, is they didn't talk to each other and they both have competing bills. Really? Is that really going to work? I mean, maybe it is, but. There's going to be some great percentage of people who are going to be disappointed. If we mimic that, that'll be the end of us, right? So there's not a reason to shame. There's not a reason to give offense. There's not a reason to despair. There's not a reason to be angry. There's not a reason to be mean. There's not a reason to hurt people. There's not a reason for any of that. You basically say this. God is love and he wants you home again. Christ loves you so that he would pull you near. Forgive anything and everything, which in itself is compelling. But anything can be forgiven that love you and sort of carry on. And basically, you can live in a community where people abide by that. And most churches, as you know, I'll just speak for myself, in Lutheran churches, most Lutheran churches, I've not felt that. I've been in plenty of Lutheran churches where everybody's at each other's throat. I've been in very few, maybe only this one, where people are not. So you've got a wonderful thing the question is, how do you invite people to share that? You're kind to them. You listen to them. You drop your judgments. You put away the notion that you need to be vengeful, hurt, or punish anybody. You ask them a question, and you tell them a story or two, and then you relax. You let the chips fall where they fall, right? And I know, I mean, over the course of talking about this and 
you know, working on this. I've talked to other pastors about it. I've talked to other people. And um, for some people, this seems a bit of a compromise because it doesn't seem angry enough. Because after all, you all know that Jesus' primary attribute is anger. And right after that is wrath. You know, and if he had you here, he'd kick you in the butt right now and set you straight. And I just don't know. I mean, I think he might be nursing at Mary's breast right now or maybe thinking about how much fun it's going to be to see you at the altar. You get to make, you create your own reality. You pick the church you want to be in. But I think this is Jesus' church. And I think there are all sorts of challenges and probably things that have impinged on us. And we've absorbed all sorts of things from the outside. And we've lost our focus so often that sometimes we become just like everybody else when the church is meant to be otherworldly. And you can look at every one of those people that Jesus talked to. Every person, one after another. Jesus treated them in an otherworldly way. What did that look like? He was calm. He was kind. He was patient. He asked a question. He told a story. And he let the Holy Spirit do his work. Right? All right. Sorry I goofed up about the timing. Take the summer off. I'll look at a calendar between now and then, and someday we'll come back. Come next week for a voters' information meeting. Come the week after and vote. Pastor Bukes is going to do some cool stuff. First and Second Kings. There should be enough HBO Game of Thrones drama in that for any of you. Um, you know, come back and we'll give you the cleaned up version. And then, you know, we'll take a few weeks off and then we'll do something again next year, okay? All right, love you. See you. Oh, we should pray because we love the baby Jesus. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. See you. Yep, love you.